As the second half of the 20th century got underway, Iran found itself at a crossroads. Societal and political changes heightened tensions in the country, leading to discontent and turmoil amongst the people of Iran. By the end of the 1970s, the stage was set for a revolution, one that would reshape Iran's and the world's history. Today on the Gems of History, we will unravel the story of that historic shift as we discuss the events of the Iranian Revolution of 1979. I also kept going back and forth on whether it was Iran or Iran. I'm guessing that me constantly sending you videos and gifs of Iran. <laughs> Iran, Iran so, so far, far away. No, we're going to get copywritten. Yep. I stood, <laughs> I stood so close to you. I just reused the melody. Of that. Then we're going to get sued like. Young Gravy did. I was just about to say, now we're no better than Young. likeness. <laughs> Keep living until, or like, what it's the old saying, like... Live long enough to see yourself, yourself as a villain. A villain. <laughs> That's so true. We are now the Young Gravy of podcasting. Yeah, we have that much swagger. Listen, if we get that successful, that we're the Young Gravy of podcasting, I will take it. That's another very funny thing, like, on the background, like, leading up to this episode this week, before recording... Jacob and I were texting back and forth, and it's like, what if we just sang, like, Iran multiple times during this episode? Which we will do. Which we will do, and I think I think you were like, well, can't wait to start an international incident, because we're a little... <laughs> can we, we offend everyone. Between the, the song and the, the pronunciation of names, we're going to reignite another international conflict. Very funny to imagine us doing a 2023 recap episode on our own show and having to feature ourselves. If we get the news, if, if we get in the news, then it's all worth it. Depends which news. If, hey, if we're still doing the podcast, it can't have been that bad of news because we're not true. arrested yet. So. That is true. Speaking of getting arrested, welcome to the Gems of History podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Jacob Shop. Joined with me is Evan Roosh. What do you want me to say there? I don't, don't Hello, know. my fellow inmates. <laughs> You're all of our inmates now because we're holding you hostage through these podcast airwaves. Yeah. Well, hey, there you go. Well, uh, but speaking of holding you hostage to the podcast airwaves, our audience has grown quite a bit lately. So if you're a new listener and are just joining us for the first time or one of the first times, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we haven't really said like what the Gems of History really is in a while at the beginning of an episode, but uh, Evan and I are two history connoisseurs, I guess you could say. We're not really history professors or anything like that. We just like to research history. We're not like sommeliers, like wine, but like we like wine, like that yeah. type of deal. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I think that's the best way to compare it. Like we're not experts, but like we're fans. We know to swirl the glass and smell it first, but we don't know what that means. We both have a decanter in our closet that we don't use. And it's probably too old to even drink out of. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that is us. And we like to kind of bring history into a kind of more accessible area so that it's a little more easy to digest and not just a bunch of dates and names that you're getting thrown in your face. And so, yeah, we're, we're kind of going to tell you guys a story, if you will. And today, that is very true, because this is 
quite an expansive topic, depending on how deep you wanted to dive into it. But we're going to try and kind of boil it down to the major players, the major occurrences in the sequence of events that leads to the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Exactly. I think that's the perfect description of how we approach each episode. Like, clearly not historians, also clearly not qualified to talk about the politics of Iran, Iraq, and the Middle East. <laughs> what, what, but, what's there to talk about, though? But I mean. We can give you some highlights, uh, give you some more information, because I think it's, I mean, it's truly one of the, this topic in particular, I mean, it's shaped the entire world. Like, it's shaped multiple invasions, it's shaped wars being declared, it's shaped I mean, views on terrorism, like it's shaped so much in recent history, like the, considering like the last 50 years. Yeah, specifically for American and mm. obviously Iranian politics. But uh, there is a lot that goes into the back and forth with this on the political side. And as Evan and I will freely admit, we are not the most politically versed people. So bear with us if we get a few things wrong here or there on that aspect of it. But yeah, this is a very big deal, and we've talked about big events in the past that have shaped history, but we haven't really talked about too many more modern events that shape the world we're living mm -hmm. in right now. So this is a little different for us, and I'm very, very excited for it. And this was actually, this is our Patreon-suggested episode for this month, and this was once again suggested by Nate, who did uh, suggest our Cats episode, so he's on a hot streak right now. But... If you want to get in on suggesting topics, you can download the Patreon app or go to patreon.com and just search for Gems of History Podcast. You can sign up there, five bucks a month, and then you get access to early early access to the episodes ad-free. You get to be in the listener polls and all that fun stuff. This is our third, correct me if I'm wrong, this is our third, yep. yeah, third, <laughs> third listener recommended topic. The first one was about the most abysmal yeah. acts committed in human history. The second one was cats, and this third one also isn't great. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because the Unit 731 episode is our fastest, oh. like, growing episode that we've ever done, so Honest I guess people just really like it. Honestly, do we even pick episodes going forward? Do we just put all the power in the hands of the people? I'll just let... The people obviously know what they want to hear, so... That is true. <laughs> I guess that makes sense that it would be doing well, but... Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, yeah, we, yeah. Got, we got kind of a lot to get into today, so... Before we begin, I want to cite my the main sources that I used for this. On YouTube, I used a channel called Al Jazeera English. They had two very good documentaries, one on kind of a summary of the events leading to the revolution and the revolution itself, and then they had another one, both about 45 minutes, one that kind of covers the legacy after the fact and how it's shaped Iran today and how it's shaped international politics around Iran and stuff like that. So I highly recommend watching those videos. Uh, AP News also did a like five or six part little five minute video series on how their reporters in Iran at the time were dealing with it, which I thought was very cool. Britannica.com had some good articles and then another YouTube channel called Crash Course did a good summary video if you just want an overview of the, the major points. And yeah, the only... Sources deviating from what Jacob just listed. I also looked up some things on BBC.com. Yeah, the British have a big role in the early days of this, too. So I guess that's a good source to if have. If you want to talk about major players, yeah. just it's world the, politics. It's the usual ones. Yeah, it's the eight. 
you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, it's USA, you, Russia, and Britain. Yeah, you can't teach an old corgi new crumpets to eat or something. Because our corgis are the, very British. Well, the queen's dead now, so it doesn't matter. Oh. <laughs> you know <laughs> and what? all of the UK audience is gone. <laughs> yep, and delete. Oh, all right, let's, let's get started on this one, shall we? We shall. The 20th century saw quite a bit of upheaval in Iran. They had multiple revolutions throughout the years. But before that, Iran was basically run by two different empires for centuries. The Safavids began ruling as the calendar year flipped to the 16th century, bringing about one of the richest periods of art and production in Islamic history, as well as establishing Shia or Shiite Islam as the official state religion in Iran, which... It was known as Persia for many years, pretty much into the 1900s, but we're going to call it Iran for the bulk of the episode. We might reference it as Persia every once in a while, but just that just needed to put that point in there because Persian is the official language. They are Persian people. They're not Arab. So if you want to talk about the longest lasting run of culture, like Persia, yeah, <laughs> like Persian Empire, they, even. they had it. Well, they were the richest one for a while. So oh, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes sense that they would still hang on for a long time. Right, right. But following the Safavids was the Qajar dynasty, which began in the waning years of the 18th century and then would last up to the beginning of the 20th century. Under the umbrella of the Qajar dynasty, Iran would see increased diplomatic relations with European powers, as well as a change in political structure locally, which gave a lot more power in the government to the religious aspect of society, basically the clergymen or the clerics in the, uh, Islamic, in the Islamic state that was known as Persia at the time. So it, it really changed how the government was structured versus just being a, a ruler. They gave more power to the religious leaders below. This is also a time period in which Western science, technology, and education made their way into Iran, and they kind of began the push for modernization into a more Western society, if you want to call it that. Yeah, you see that, I mean, parallels throughout history, you see that with quite a few countries, and they all respond differently, right? Like when we talk about, when we do an episode about Japan, the effects of Western, Westernization, that's not how you pronounce Westernization. Westernization <laughs> uh, on Japan and how it's kind of led to the eventual like closed border approach that Japan had for a long time. It also helped them for a long time when they learned to use these different technologies, but Again, also led to World War Two. some but, would say. But they're like the perfect example of this because they are one of the fastest revolutionizing people like, yep. as far as technology and stuff goes. So it's perfect. It's a perfect place to go to when you want to kind of have an example for something like westernization. Right. And then there's also examples where it's very bad, such as yes. in China. And the British were like, you know what? everyone's addicted to drugs now yeah that was a at least it wasn't us this time right well we got in there if we got <laughs> it, our, if we got our cuts in at the end we with did. the old with the old opium wars but. yeah but with all of these new influences came a decline in sovereignty in iran because russia and the british began to pose their wills on iran and soon it was becoming hard to do anything without the say so of another power Russia and Britain slowly encroached on the edges of Iran, and it wasn't long before the country was essentially bankrupt and the government was weakened to the point that they kind of rolled over on major decisions to whoever was 
shelling out the most money or showing the most force on the edge of the country. Exactly. They're starting to become more and more dependent on the quote-unquote superpowers of the time being Russia, who is the most close in uh, the other countries, other Western countries. So that didn't have a great effect on the people's morale who were suffering the most from this economic turmoil at the time. But yeah, it, it was a this was a, a darker period once the Qajars kind of were weakening on the de- on the decline, and then Britain obviously is always going to be a little stronger than a country that doesn't really have a major player status mm-hmm. in the world affairs. So, but once the 20th century rolled around, religious establishments, merchants, and lower classes organized into a revolutionary force to fight against the oppressive ruling class of Iran and try and shift away from that absolute monarchy towards more of a constitutional one. Basically, the people were just sick of a more dicta- dictatorial dictatorial I'm type glad, of government. I'm glad, but not glad that my mispronunciation and general brain farts have transferred to you today. <laughs> and it's not good because we got some tough names later that aren't even like this isn't the hard part yet. Oh no! <laughs> but they they basically wanted to change from that one ruler system to a more democracy style government, and they organized a rebellion. Farmers had been taxed heavily to recover national debts incurred by irresponsible spending, while the religious figures were being banished from the country for standing up against the tyrannical rule of the government. And it kind of all came to a head when the government passed a concession with the British government to sell all of the Iranian-grown tobacco to Britain for less than 5% of the profits that it would make. And that is when the people said they had enough. I mean, that's insane. (laughs) I mean... Talk about a great deal, but right. you're literally just cutting off or just not paying an entire industry, an entire part of their economy. Yeah, the, I, I want to see five percent reduction. Like that's a hell of a coupon code, right? <laughs> if <laughs> I remember collect correctly, they got a cons- like a concession price of fifteen thousand dollars a year or so mm-hmm. off of the tobacco, whereas Britain was selling it for upwards of five hundred thousand dollars at the time. So yeah, they were getting very gypped on this deal. Wow, that is insane. (laughs) Throughout the following years, Russia's government lost battles to the Japanese, which proved to the Iranians that the Tsar wasn't invincible and that they could probably fight against their own government if they were organized enough. And then once 1906 rolled around, protests broke out, up to 20,000 strong, and eventually they were met violently by the Iranian Shah's troops. But the protesters took up residence at the British embassy, and the Shah gave in to their demands. He elected a committee, which drafted up a constitution, created a parliament, and put some limits on the king's power. It also gave more legal rights to all people of Iran, including minorities, and made Islam once again the state religion. So, 1906 saw a a pretty big shift on the surface in power. I do love these types of stories. I mean, that this literally is why, like, the Magna Carta in Britain and like old school, like British empires, was created. Uh, literally, the farmers got sick of the government's bullshit and the ruling powers' bullshit and marched on the capital. I don't love that they took the embassy approach on this one. Yeah. You'll see they do that again, <laughs> but this time it was actually like seeking refuge there instead exactly. of taking them hostage. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean in. On the surface, I mean, yeah, it's it's the poor people kind of taking back the power a little bit and saying, we need some rights here. Well, and it was big, too, that the clergy or the clerics were behind them. That Because, as we mentioned in the Qajar dynasty, that this was the time when the clerics got power. Mm-hmm. So having that 
part of society backing you in this kind of pushes the the ruler or the shah in this scenario to bend a little more. They they don't yeah. have absolute authority and and they do, but they don't, you know. Right. Once the government starts messing around with people's religion, I mean all-time bad move because then people get super pissed. Especially you know? in an Islamic state. Especially, <laughs> yes. So this move in 1906 wouldn't be able to achieve everything it hoped to because in 1908, Russia and Britain eventually showed their support to the Shah and the government and backed them with force against the protesters and the revolutionaries. And the movement also lacked a strong central leader, so different splinter groups ultimately disagreed on the details of the uprising. In addition, the clergy began withdrawing their support, and the leaders ended up overestimating their support and ultimately didn't have the influence to enact any real lasting change. Without a, pl- without a plan on how to replace the existing system that had been in place for millennia, the revolution ultimately failed. But it was a good stepping stone. Quite the stepping stone. <clears throat> like you mentioned, a millennia of one way of ruling, and now they're finally getting some like headway, if you will, to eventually lead to what we'll be focusing mainly on the episode today. Yeah, it, it was just a big moral sh- or not a moral shift it was a big mental shift for the people they weren't they they didn't feel like they were ultimately repressed anymore they felt like they still could have some sort of push and pull with the government that they were under the control of at this point exactly it's like they can do this they just need three or four things to go a different way right they honestly just needed to see the little toaster that could and they were like <laughs> we could do that yeah except a big old I don't know, Saza, which is the <laughs> Russia and the UK, come in and they just That's, that's it right a up. chainsaw coming yeah. <laughs> In the following decades, Iran would come to discover oil in the country after World War I and would make large concessions with the British for oil rights, establishing the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is now better known as the BP Oil Company. Huh. The more you know. It's a kind of a big deal now, isn't it? Like... I mean, I small beginnings. That's kind of crazy. The history of, I guess, cap the history of big oil. We're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> and exactly. we got a we got a South Park episode about it. Oh yeah, thank you, the Anglo-Iranian oil company. Yeah. With Russia out of the picture after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, Britain was able to exercise influence in Iran mostly unhindered. I say mostly unhindered because they had technically been forced out of Iran in 1921, but were still able to support a coup within Iran, which was led by a man named Reza Khan. Initially, Reza Khan had wished to style himself more as a secular nationalist president in Iran, similar to how Turkey had done it at the time. But the Shia clergy fiercely opposed that idea, and he crowned himself Reza Shah Pahlavi, beginning the Pahlavi dynasty in 1925. Yeah, again, you have to have the backing of the religious group in power, uh, especially when you're in um, an Islamic country like this. Yeah, after, it's just hard to break a tradition that's been around for 2,000 years or oh, yeah. more. So it, it, for him to try and be more of a worldly, kind of Western-leaning, mm-hmm. modernist president not a not a shah or a king it was a a very bold idea 
Well, I mean, we even saw in last week's episode when we talked about the Borgias. I mean, a little bit. Like, everyone was against the Borgias because, well, A, they were terrible people, but also they were from Spain. Yeah. Too. And so, you and, know. And they were secular. They so, weren't yeah. as religious. So yeah. it's the same. It's, yeah. And very power hungry. <laughs> yeah, that is for sure. And, but we digress. <laughs> and similarly, they only had two, they had two popes in a short period. The Pallavi dynasty yeah. has two shahs in a short period. Right. So. Right. right. Once Reza Shah was in power, he moved to make reforms that reduced the influence of the religious classes and changed many of the courts from religious-based to secular-based courts that were overseen by state bureaucracies. He improved the status of women, the minimum age for marriage was raised, and divorce laws were made more equitable for women. The number of public schools increased, and in general, modernization and westernization became more of a norm. So, at the beginning, he did do some good things. Yeah, love the shout-outs to the ladies. Yes. In this case. So, and also school, but... <laughs> <laughs> who needs that? Yeah. But even though he does adopt the Shah title and keeps the same kind of structure for the government, he's already kind of influencing it in a way that's more Western and more secular, even though he had to concede ultimately on the ruling status. But Right, right. You know, you give... Give a little, take a little. Yeah. I would say. Applies to all politics. A little slow burn instead of it all at once kind of yes, thing. Yes, exactly. However, Reza Shah also went pretty hard against certain groups as well. The press was muzzled, trade unions were banned, and political parties were outlawed. He also renegotiated a large number of the oil concessions that Iran had in place with the British, eventually making deals to trade with Nazi Germany out of fear of the Russians. Oof. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like huge supporter. I shouldn't say huge, but supporter of women back the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Basically, they were just scared of the people that had been there before. And they mm -hmm. said, well, these German guys are kind of doing a good job right now. So if they do end up winning and we support, put our support with them, we'll be in a way better spot than we are now. Talk about putting your pet on the wrong horse. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're going all in on this one. Yeah. Right, right. Eventually, the Allies, mainly Russia and Britain, who are now united against the Nazis, forced Reza Shah to ad abdicate the throne, leaving it to his young son, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. It's interesting that they made him leave the throne, but it's like, you know what? Your son can actually have it as well. Right. They didn't stop the succession of power to yeah. the same family at all. <laughs> they yeah. were just like, I guess you're bad. Yeah. Out of here, punk. Since he made the decision to side with the Nazis, it was his fault, so I guess they kind of gave his son a pass. Right, right. Mohammad Reza Shah was introduced into power at a very interesting point in Iranian history. The country was occupied by foreign powers, it was crippled by wartime inflation, and politically, it was, to say the least, somewhat a mess. Mm-hmm. During this time, Mohammad Reza Shah and Iran saw much more economic growth, though, as well as more freedom of press and new political parties. So he's already kind of changing things that his father had set in place. Right. Letting the people, we call that letting the people do things. Yeah, we call, <laughs> a little more democratic, as one might say. If you will, yes. Part of this was due to the fact that after World War II, Britain allowed Iran to have more say in their political decisions, which led to the election of a communist candidate for prime minister named Ooh. Mohammed Mossadegh. And then Britain was like, that backfired. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> Britain, very, very anti-communist Pretty at this quickly point. turned that decision around. <laughs> yep. 
Masade was elected by the two-day party in 1951, and he went on to nationalize Iran's oil industry and effectively ended Britain's allowance of popular participation in government. Masadegh also used his appointment to attempt to echo the 1906 movement and began to strip the Shah of a lot of his powers, effectively trying to make him into a figurehead instead of an absolute monarch. However, since he led a group that was made up of too many differing ideals in one party, there weren't any clear ideas for a new reform, and eventually the clergy opposed Masadegh's leadership. According to James S. Davies in his writings in Towards a Theory of Revolution, quote, there was a growing clerical support for the Shah and the Mossad. To some, it appeared as if confusion reigned, and there were few things the Iranian political establishment abhorred more than the whiff of anarchy. End quote. The whiff of anarchy. Wonder what that smells like. Probably not. Well, yeah, probably not good. I'm imagining some sort of sludge or fire. Lots of fire. Probably lots of brimstone. It probably smells like it does near my house right now because a pallet manufacturer just started on fire recently. I could not imagine a worse thing to start on fire. <laughs> How are you going like, to tell talk me? Talk about worst case scenarios. I mean, very sorry for the people affected if you're listening to this, but can't imagine a worse place for that to happen. I was driving. Was in it? The, it's between that and a gasoline plant. Seriously. An I was, oil tank. I was driving into work on Monday and it just was, it looked like there was fog everywhere and then it just smelled like barbecue. Very, your, very weird. <laughs> on your way to work, and you're like, yo, someone's cooking that well, shit. I guess, like, people were saying that the Canadian wildfires were affecting the air quality here. Oh. But I was like, there's no way that it's this potent this far south. But yeah, it was just a pallet factory that started, or a pallet manufacturer that started on fire. Oh, gosh. But, yeah. anyways, basically, what James S. Davies is saying is that there was too many people trying to put their hands into the pie, so to say on how the government was run, and once the clergy got a, a sniff of all of this, these underpinnings of revolution going on, they snuffed it out pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, with a lot of different groups, if you can't get everyone on the same page, it's never going to work. And that's what's interesting about the 1979 when it ultimately does work in yeah. Iran, is that it's not just one group. It's mm -hmm. it's the Marxist, it's the religious people, it's the Republican side of the, the Iranian revolutionaries. So it's everyone coming together in one turn, which is very different than most revolutions that we normally would talk about. The Islamic Avengers is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's when the suicide squad works with the uh, oh, DC with the, League with, of Heroes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Calls for return of the monarchist system began to ring out stronger, and eventually the British, with possible support from the U.S., along with clergy and military forces, were able to organize a coup against Mossadegh, the prime minister, and he was forced to leave Iran after demonstrations began to speak out against him very strongly. I believe they even did, they said that the official... Like PR statement was him and his family are going on a vacation. Yeah. Never to come back. Never to return from the Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> and if you look if you look into this, it'll say nineteen fifty-three, the US the CIA organized the coup against Basadig to get yeah. him out of power, basically. Which is partly true, but mostly it was the fact that the religious leaders were against him and were pushing to get him out of positions of power and they were back in the Shah. So everyone kind of saw this guy's it, he's 
turning a wrong corner and we can't really support that. Right. Yeah. I do also think it's more of the local people there who historically have been in charge, like the clergy, of being in charge of basically laying out who the real ruler is. The CIA, I'm sure we're doing CIA things, but... They always are. They're always scheming. (laughs) Always scheming. But basically, when you have the military supporting the Shah, it's going to be kind of hard to organize a serious revolution. Right. Like, at this point, at least. The communist ideals of Mossadegh scared the elite in Iran, and the clergy couldn't allow those ideals to encroach on their powers or their well-being. So after the figurehead was gone, the Mossadegh government buckled, and within a week, Mohammad Reza Shah was back in the country after a brief absence and appointed a new prime minister. Shortly after, Iranian oil development became a huge focus for the Western countries, and oil production in Iran skyrocketed. The oil revenues in Iran rose from $555 million in 1964 to $20 billion in 1976 bringing in a lot of funding for public works and infrastructure reforms. To put it lightly, wowza. Yeah. <laughs> that is such an increase of cash. That is uh, 40 times the amount that they were bringing in before, so a little bit bigger. Props to you on that math. I'm so, not going to double check you. <laughs> <laughs> but simultaneously, while funding was going to public works and infrastructure reforms, the Shah was also instituting policies to stomp out any possible rivals to his power. Oh, yes. Like, we, I think we even saw this with not to compare this government to Nazi Germany. But I mean, on Hitler's rise to power with uh, their party, he also did the same thing. Like, he did great things for the economy, but also yeah. made sure that no one could oppose him, eliminated parties, bombed party rival party offices. I'm not exact sure if that's what happened in this case but it's very popular method it is shutting down your rivals you can't lose if there's no one that you're playing against if you strangle everyone else out then it's a little easier to be the only one in power do you think that's what the boston strangler was trying to do (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah well that was actually two of them oh no that was the hillside he's eventually being the mayor of boston just one (laughs) strangle at a time Mohammad Reza Shah uprooted any talk of nationalization and formed a special branch of the government and a secret police to monitor domestic dissidents, rounding up and torturing anyone that the Shah referred to as the quote-unquote black threat of the populace. Ooh, you never... I don't think there's ever been a positive word about a secret police. Yeah, (laughs) it's never good, like... Going back to Nazi Today we Germany. Just call, we just call that the CIA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Except they're in broad daylight. But uh, the black threat was basically domestic. The people domestically that they wanted to track. Because right, they had right. the red threat, which was more of the Russian people on the outside. And the black threat was homegrown. So that, that was the one they kind of cracked down on the hardest. You're, as tell- you're telling me that Iran also had a red scare? Yeah, in their pretty country, much. They're just looking... <laughs> Making sure their neighbors aren't Russian. Yeah. I mean, because all of this is going on during the Cold War. Right, right. I mean, it makes a lot. And they just kicked a communist out. So it makes a lot of sense that they have to keep an eye on that. Oh, right. All jokes aside, I mean, this secret police was in charge of counterintelligence to the biggest superpowers of the time. Yeah. Pretty big job. (laughs) But at the same time, Britain and the U.S. are still pretty much allies for yeah. Iran. So, I mean, it's it's a very interesting dynamic that they have to try and work through at this point. Again, socio-political things that 
I am not qualified <laughs> or really understand. Yeah. Or I don't even know if we have all the information yet, but maybe one day. So with this new secret police, they would imprison people without any word sent back to their families, and these people that they would imprison would be subjected to brutal treatments, such as being handcuffed to a radiator for up to six hours while the radiator was heating up the handcuffs and burning their wrists. And in the Middle East. Yeah, it's very warm. Uh, The secret police known as the Savak would subject people to the worst tortures possible in order to rout out any movements against the Shah. However, some of these people that they were imprisoning were just peaceful and were protesting legitimate defenses of human rights. Eventually, these people filled prisons by the hundreds, leading to a large psychological and fear-based regime under Mohammad Reza Shah. It's not to be understated how much the people were scared of this, because Mm -hmm. they thought that this secret police, the Savak, was tens of thousands strong whereas it was probably closer to like maybe five thousand at most right and they just thought they were around every corner they said i think they thought one in five people in any given room were part of the savak so it's kind of similar to that uh wow it's kind of some i don't remember if it was a movie or what it was from where there was a teacher giving a lecture and saying like one out of three guys in this room are likely to take advantage of you as a woman or whatever it is right yeah it's kind of similar to that where they were like one in five of us who is it that is so scary it's terrifying (laughs) you can just never be at peace like you never like relax in a group setting yeah one like one bad joke one like let's go brandon type (laughs) type comments and your ass is grass but it's reading about some of the tortures i'll just give one example they i don't remember what they called it exactly but basically they put a metal bucket on your head Mm -hmm. and they would whip you with whatever they had and as you screamed it would just echo in this metal bucket and then it would disorient you and then they would be hitting the bucket with the cables or whatever they were using it's just uh it's terrifying That is so so scary. I hate that. And one of the but one of the guys that was imprisoned at this time period, he ended up talk like room or being in the same cell block as some of the guys after the revolution that would run the country. Right. So it's they did they were locking up people that end up being major players in this. So so they get they get a few, if you want to say right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they did their job correctly sometimes. Right. Not justifying torture. <laughs> yeah, it's not but, good. But if they, they were getting the targets they wanted to get, I guess. Right, right, right. But while all this was going on, the increased economic activity allowed for Iran to focus a lot of money into education and health programs. Income per capita for Iranians skyrocketed, and industrial developments were fast-tracked to the forefront, which led to the White Revolution in the early 1960s. The White Revolution saw many Western ideals being introduced into Iran and overhauled the country from the top down. It led to a boom in population, a drop in infant mortality, and a new professional middle class arose. Women's emancipation and inclusion in society also climbed once again. But while things were good for some, there was plenty of opposition to the Shah's new ideals, mostly from the religious side. The reforms that he was in that the Shah was implementing further secular, secularized Iran, pushing away from the traditional base of clerical power in the law, as well as in education. Religious-held lands were being broken up, and eventually the ulama, or the religious interpreters of the law in Iran, began to criticize the regime. 
And among those who were the most vocal was one man named Ruhala Musavi Khomeini, a professor who was award- awarded the honorary Shia title of Ayatollah. And Evans got a little more information on Khomeini, who kind of give us a little background on who this guy is, because he becomes a pretty big deal. Some would say the biggest deal for about a decade yeah. in Iran when all of a sudden Some might done. say he gave modern Iran the name it has now. Right. I mean, truly. Uh, Khomeini, he was, his family lineage was very much intertwined with these religious leaders, these clergymen uh, that we've been discussing who pretty much, in their own way, ran the country, right? Like, they had, or rulers had to have the support of these clergy, of the religious leaders, to really do much. Yeah. And so Khomeini came from a long line of, of these leaders. When he was about five months old, his father was actually killed on the, or- on the orders of a local landlord. So you're already... Puts a bad taste in the mouth. Around five months old, he's like, you know what? I kind of hate the people that have the money and are in power. Uh, in his childhood, he was raised by his mother and aunt, and then when they died, by his elder brother, Mortaza. He was educated in various Islamic schools, and in 1922, he settled in the city of Akam, which at the time was the, let's call it the center of arts and intellectual thinking. I honestly would compare it to maybe like an Athens yeah, it was type a, deal for Iran specifically. A very big, a very big center, central location in Iran at the time. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. It was their center for culture, arts, and more specifically in this case, to learn more about the uh, particular, the Shia uh, scholarship, if you will. I believe, uh, it, I think it's kind of pronounced like home almost, like it's calm. And right, so yeah. one of the videos that I was watching made Me a joke, and, and he was just like, he did a lot of preaching from calm. <laughs> so he's a working from home. Yep, he's working from home <laughs> oh kind of guy. <laughs> Man, if Zoom was around, this fellow would be spreading the news. Yeah, implementing COVID lockdown ideals early. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, in just a shy under a decade uh, in the 1930s, he actually became a prominent scholar there. And as a scholar and teacher, he produced numerous writings on Islamic philosophy, law, and ethics. And also, got on the Shah's ass, to yeah. put it lightly. Uh, basically, like we mentioned before, the Shah was very much for the westernization, nailed at that time, of Iran and uh, the advancement of some women's rights. Not saying, well, Khomeini was very old school, let's put it there very yeah. bluntly, and he does that when he gets into power, but also spoke out quite a bit about the fact that he's... He's like shutting down the press. He's doing a lot of bad things. He's working with Western governments, all that good stuff. And Khomeini was very much a man who had his principles set. And he very much laid it all on the line for Islamic purity in his nation. You have to think about his motivations, right? He's his entire life, he's been around like the clergy these islamic principles he's been part of the lineage he's a prominent scholar he wrote incredible philosophy law ethics books to really lead and be on the forefront of this so that's kind of setting who the man was 
and in the 1950s, it eventually got him to the acclamation, like you mentioned, of an Ayatollah, which was basically the major or one of the major religious leaders of the religion. And by the 60s, he received the title of Grand Ayatollah, which that sounds, I know this is very different, but Grand Ayatollah just sounds so much better than Pope. Yeah, it really <laughs> I mean, does. We have to, if we're saying brass tacks here, like it's so much better. Way cooler title. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. It's like Supreme Leader versus President. Like it just exactly, sounds yeah. so much cooler. <laughs> right. Oh but my gosh. Going back to his like philosophy and stuff and being more old school, you have to think about it. He was basically growing up at the end of the Qajar dynasty. So he yeah. still had that idea of a dynastic rule of a, a very Islamic mm-hmm. central state. And once the Shahs came into power, the uh, Pahlavi dynasty came into power, then that kind of started to shift. So he was already kind of learning about the old way of things before that new way of things got introduced. So it's probably hard for him to break from what he was learning growing up and get into an, this entirely new structure of living right i forgot to mention he was born in 1902 yeah so right so to your point he's literally he's literally seen all of this yeah like we're talking about multiple governments and just at this point in the story like 58 years yeah because the reza shah the first guy didn't come into power until 25 right so i mean he's already 23 by that point so Mm -hmm. yeah he's he's seen world war one he's he's seen how they pushed out a governmental system for a little bit and then failed. Mm-hmm. And so he's just like, well, I guess this is just the way it is then. So. Right. He's seen his country get robbed by Western powers for that tobacco deal that we mentioned. He's seen, well, he will see uh, the exploitation of oil. Like he's seen it all. So you can see why he is very, I guess, set in his ways. Why it's not even, it's beyond religion. I would say it's anti-Western anti-Western. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, get, uh, Based off of that little background that we have on him, when he when the White Revolution officially began, he began to double down on a lot of his ideologies. As Evan mentioned, he started to speak out, saying that there was issues with women having all this new freedom under the new laws that the Shah was implementing. And he also spoke out against the regime by stating that they were rigging elections, they were neglecting the poor, they were selling oil to Israel, which is a very prominent enemy in Iranian history is being yeah. there. Them and Israel don't really get along too well. Right. And for this, he actually winds up in prison in 1963. Yes. Uh, so he basically went out saying the Shah was basically a king and that a king was un-Islamic in nature and it was the people's duty to rise up against that. So yeah, he was put in prison and the school that he taught at was sacked and while that happened, it killed several of the students that were there, and then eventually he's exiled from Iran. He moves from Turkey to Iraq, and then eventually he ends up in France. I'm very proud of you. There was a great opportunity to drop an Iran. Iran. <laughs> Iran so far Damn from it. Quan- run it, Quan. Run it back. Run yeah. it back. Right. So he was exiled, and... He, 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 <laughs> he was exiled, and he looked at himself in the mirror and said, I ran, I ran so far away, all the way to France. <laughs> there, now we know we can move on. Listen, you have to watch that music video. When I sent it to you this week, I was just cackling, laughing. Like, there's one part 
sorry for spoilers for this 1979 <laughs> it's a music it's not like yeah. a movie or anything but he's there's a literally a point where he's literally trapped in like a room of mirrors and there's like two i believe two women just like walking towards him and he's like where do i go <laughs> <laughs> but it's all mirrors it's so uh, beautiful like beautiful old school music dude those old school music well like the the take on me music video yeah. where it's like he jumps into a produce stand and turns yeah. into a cartoon like what what is happening <laughs> oh man but the time they're like this is fire this is awesome. i'm sorry back to, hey wow back, back to the plot a little derailed there <laughs> um so after Khomeini was arrested and exiled from the country small protests broke out but were very quickly dealt with by the shah and he Mohammad Reza Shah believed that the heightened financial success of Iran would be enough to soothe the tensions that were brought up by Khomeini. That worked for a little bit, I guess, but from France, Khomeini kept in contact with a bunch of his colleagues in Iran, and he completed his philosophy on an Iranian state run by the clergy, which he went on to record on cassette tapes and sent back to Iran to be smuggled into the country. So, after he was gone. Effectively, the biggest face of the protests was gone with him. But once land reforms on farms began to prove unsuccessful and agricultural workers began to move into the bigger cities, a bunch of jobs were taken up by those people and other people couldn't find them. So there was a severe lack of work for some of these new college students and all of these farmers that are coming from the outskirts of the Iranian cities. And eventually, the high prices of inflated goods, the isolation and poor living conditions led to a feeling of unrest amongst the general populace of Iran. Which was almost the perfect setting for Khomeini to still expand and do his work. I mean, he literally cultivated a huge following in the country that he was just kicked out of and then got kicked out of Iraq by Saddam Hussein. Yeah. That's something to put on, like, uh, like. Oh, he comes into this later too. Like, no, I, right, yeah, right, right, right. But yeah. like, how does someone just get like was? Yeah, well, I what digress. did you do to right. get kicked out of by by Saddam like, Hussein? Was Saddam like, you know what? That's a little far for me. Yeah, it, <laughs> but yeah, using VHS tapes. That is no, because just cassettes, or, like audio me, cassettes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But yeah, cultivating a huge, huge following, thousands of miles away. Through a network, I mean, through, I apologize, I don't know how they got the cassette tapes there, I'm assuming. He just had connections that would take them with. Right. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So, I mean, I mean, that's even cooler. That's like underground. Never mind, cut that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is very like impressive that not only did he stick to it, mm-hmm. but he stuck to it enough to keep sending messages back to his native country, even though yeah. he was just exiled. So, like, if they found him after he was exiled and still communicating in the country, I don't think he would have survived very long. No. So it's, it's, uh, he's putting his life in his hands here, in, in a way. While the land reforms and available work were slowly failing to meet their goals, the Iranian army was thriving. It had become the most powerful and well-equipped force in the region, thanks to the help of the United States. U.S. of A, baby. That's always the classic... Uh... Whenever we're like, why do they have like AK-47s? Yeah. Who like, are the these Russians? revolutionaries? <laughs> yeah, how did they get their guns? There's no weapons factories in the area. Oh. <laughs> and then we Oops. get ISIS. <laughs> yeah. 
Speaking of the United States, many of the other Western powers had begun to exercise influence in Iran once again as well through transplanted advisors to the Shah's rule. Amongst all this, inflation and standards of living continued to drop due to high government spending, and instead of helping the populace out, the government sponsored a war on high prices, which led to the arrests of traders and manufacturers. A war on high prices. That sounds like a shopping center like marketing slogan. Right. <laughs> but it's like a small town shop. It's not the freaking That's government. Like, yeah, it's not Walmart saying, hey, rollbacks. <laughs> right. It's an old vet who started a grocery shop like a mom pie, like, we're declaring war on high prices. <laughs> right. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. But it's just, you can see where the revolution comes from very clearly. Oh, totally. In this, because you see the Shah, who's, he's lavishly spending he's having these huge opulent parties he's building Mm -hmm. these big palaces and stuff and then at the same time he's turning around and coming down on these shop owners saying your prices are too high we're going to arrest you yeah so that's not going to really lead to a happy public right you're you're literally you're imprisoning the people that do have the money yeah like pay taxes exactly and amongst all of this, don't forget that the whole time, any form of social or political protest was met by censorship, surveillance, and harassment and eventual arrest by the secret police. Finally, putting their differences aside, the secular intellectuals abandoned their efforts of reducing the Shia authority in the government and sided with the clerical leaders in the hopes that a combined front would be enough to overthrow the Shah. The group attached themselves to Khomeini's teachings, and now that the general public was able to get a hold of copies of Khomeini's tapes, people began to look towards the clergy and the intellectuals for guidance. So this is where you really see all of the groups kind of coalescing together. Right? They're all getting together like the Avengers, like I said. Yeah. On January 7th, 1978, a paper released a headline that was critical of Khomeini, stating he was a British spy and a homosexual, and sparked an initial demonstration that would eventually lead to the 1979 revolution. In addition, the demonstrators were fed up with foreign intervention in Iran, with one woman stating, quote, American lifestyles had come to be imposed as an ideal, the ultimate goal. Americanism was a model, American popular culture, books, magazines, film, had swept over our country like a flood. We found ourselves wondering, is there any room for our own culture? End quote. That's very powerful from, I mean, that's such a powerful idea or like realization to yeah. like your, your country is literally losing its sense of identity and it's just getting very wrapped up in Americanism at the time. Like you can see why the people who did not love the West were pretty upset about that. And it's not that the people were embracing these Western ideals as much as mm. they were being forced. I think right. that was the big idea. It's just, we don't necessarily want... If we want it, we'll come look for it. Exactly. So, Originally, these demonstrations were just simple strikes, with people asking simply for liberty and democracy, not necessarily an Islamic government, but rather a secular one, just one that listens to the people. These protests started small, but the government police and military members made things worse for themselves by eventually firing on these crowds, killing some of the demonstrators and rallying more public support to the cause, turning the protests into a full revolution. In addition, accidents such as a fire at a cinema that killed hundreds of people were seen as actions of the Shah, which added to the unrest already present in the public. 
Thousands of students, followed by more Iranian youths who had come to the cities looking for work, began to gather more and more force as they spoke out against Mohammad Reza Shah and his regime. The Shah saw the protests as an international conspiracy against him, which led to a cycle of violence and only served to strengthen the protests under the banner of Shia Islam, and thus painted the revolution as one of Islamic intent. So this is how it becomes, because most of the time if you look this up, it will be an Islamic revolution. It'll, mm. it'll be based in Islam. And that's not where it started. It just became that way once basically everyone coalesced under Khomeini. And that's where it got the identity of being Islamic. Right, right. I feel like that's a very much like how we're taught, like in the West, you know, in Europe and America, how we're taught how every single action is dictated by Islam. But not in this case, primarily. Right. I mean, it does end up becoming an Islamic state, obviously, but right. I, it's it's very easy for, especially in our country, where there is a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment at any given uh, time, for people to just paint it as, oh, it's just the the Muslims, or it's just the Islamic religion doing what they do normally, you know? Right. It, it's not how it is. They sometimes, or we sometimes fail to see, like, oh, they're, like, human rights are being violated. Yeah, there's a whole culture behind what you're talking about, so right, maybe right. you should look into that. Mm -hmm. But now that Khomeini was the ultimate face of opposition to the Shah's regime and was preaching merits of a complete overthrow of the absolute monarchy and replacing it with an Islamic Republic, shouts of, the Shah must go, turned into death to the Shah and every class of society was now against him. Statues of the Shah were thrown down, photos of Mohammad Reza Shah were burned, and giant groups of women and merchants began to flood the streets in the thousands. On January 16, 1979, Mohammad Reza Shah fled the country of Iran, never to return. 2,500 years of Persian monarchy in Iran came to an end just like that. Shortly after, the military forces that were loyal to the Shah declared themselves neutral. And after 16 years in exile and only two weeks after the Shah's departure from Iran, Khomeini returned. When asked what he felt about his return to Iran, he apparently replied with one word, nothing. A new pro-democracy prime minister was put in place by Khomeini in short order, as well as a new chief justice to deliver Islamic rulings named Ayatollah Khalhali. He would come to be known as the Hanging Judge due to his ruthless rulings, many of which were done in secret trials against former government officials and Savak agents. Oh yeah, they got on the Savak quite a bit. Yeah, very quickly. No, oh, yeah. The new regime rounded up former supporters of the Shah's regime and began to kill them en masse with thousands ending up dead. In support of the new Islamic rule, symbols of Western culture were taken and destroyed, such as alcohol. And on April 1st, 1979, the official new beginning of the new Islamic Republic was in place. Very quickly, this turned around. Very quick turnaround. And as soon as it got put into place, Khomeini immediately, immediately, completely abandoned everything that the Shah and the Shah Forum was doing in terms of those pro-Western uh, sentiments. I mean, those were completely out the door. Like we mentioned, it wasn't... The initial revolution wasn't 
specifically motivated by Islamic practices, but this is now what it's become. And I mean, you have a ready-made figurehead for your new religion mm-hmm. in Khomeini. So once he returns, the people are already rallied around him. It's easy to see that he's going to be the one in charge. It's very interesting. 2,500-ish years of Persian rule of aristocracy of basically the rich ruling, and then it becomes down to this religious figure, this man that's like highly educated in law, ethics, philosophy, in the religion. Kind of a complete 180 yeah. in terms of ruling figurehead. And, I mean, at the beginning, it is good. Like, the the more moderate side of the revolution and the more Islamic hardliners are kind of working together mm-hmm. at the beginning, but ultimately, it's Khomeini at the top. And that's kind of where the the decline of any more ideas of a republic go out the window. And their foreign policy basically gets thrown out the window. Yes. Like they're not working with like of course they're me anti West, but like all agreements with Russia are thrown out. Even with Iraq, we eventually get to the Iran Iraq war. Yeah. Just a few short wait, is it actually the same year as Khomeini? It's, it's a year after. A year yeah. after, yeah, so right. We'll right. get into that in a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's it very quickly turns into a mess. Oh yeah. The former Shah, Mohammad Reza Shah, found refuge in America after leaving Iran, and he went there uh, under the auspice of getting treatment for his cancer in the country of the United States after seeking asylum in other countries first, basically saying they o- the United States is the only place that has the treatments that I need for my cancer, and so that's why I'm here. It's not that I'm just seeking political asylum. He's like, what's happening back home? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> it's just a mess, you know? Who did this? <laughs> the, the kids are getting up to their usual antics. Their usual hijinks, yeah. They're bothering Which is the babysitter. funny to say, because, like, Khomeini was, like, 80 at this point. Right, right. As a consequence of the Shah seeking asylum in the United States, supporters of the new regime in Iran surrounded the U.S. embassy in Iran. Since there was a prior assault on the embassy earlier in the revolution... The staff had been cut from more than 1,400 down to about 70 at the U.S. Embassy. In the spring and summer, the Iranian authorities did attempt to strengthen the security around the embassy. However, once news got out that the former Shah had officially arrived in America, a group of, I wrote in my notes 3,000, but I want to say it's closer to 300. I think I just added an extra zero. But... A large group, mostly of students, seized the U.S. Embassy and took an eventual total of 66 American men and women hostage. Probably one that, sorry to interrupt, probably one of the most, probably one of the biggest news stories of the last 50 years when this happened. Oh, and it's one of the most important events, I would say, in in world politics. Right, right. According to one of the hostage takers, the group only requested the return of the Shah to Iran, and he stated that he knew it was a lofty goal and it probably wouldn't happen, but this group that took the U.S. Embassy hostage only expected the siege to last for a few days. Oh. (laughs) Little did they know that it would last for over a year. Yeah, a few days. They uh, miscalculated that one. Yep. Well, and that's like when the Iran-Iraq war happened, Saddam Hussein says we'll be able to take the country in seven days. So a lot of people are overestimating their abilities in this scenario. A lot of people have a lot of confidence is (laughs) what I'm hearing. 
Within days, representatives of President Jimmy Carter and Tehran-based diplomats attempted to free the hostages but failed, with the former U.S. Attorney General being denied admission into Iran to help with negotiations. In short order, it became apparent that the heavy anti-American atmosphere in Iran meant that nobody was willing or able to release the hostages. In the wake of his new appointment as supreme leader, Khomeini saw this as a chance to consolidate his power in the new regime and supported the hostage-takers. This move is seen by some as one of the most irresponsible and lasting decisions made by Khomeini as it completely soured relations with the former ally of the U.S. and turned them into a major enemy. Oh yeah, <laughs> he kind of knew what he was... That was calculated. It was not long-term thinking <laughs> on no, his not, part. Not one bit. In response, some members of Khomeini's new government began to demand he release the hostages, but they were outnumbered, and the Iranian government demanded that the U.S. cease interfering in Iranian affairs and return the Shah back to the country. In an attempt to barter with Iran, the U.S. ceased to buy oil from them and filed lawsuits against the Iranian government for the seizure of the hostages. After a couple weeks, Khomeini did release 13 of the hostages, but the rest remained. Six other Americans who were in Iran at the time, who were not captured, managed to flee the country with the help of Canadian diplomats, but for the other 53, they were constantly being used as bargaining chips for Iran, with the government stating they were going to arrest the hostages on charges of espionage or whatever else and put them on trial. And then the hangman, or excuse me, the hangman, and then the hanging judge gets to him. Yeah, seriously. Like, like they're putting a lot of pressure. It's very yeah. funny that. I say they're bartering where they're just literally using embargoes and threats of violence against one another to get their way. It's a certain way of negotiating, I guess. Yeah, it's it's not like old West bartering where you're like, I'll give you three pigs for that bale of flour. I'll give you a cow for your daughter's hand in marriage. No, it's uh, I'll hang these guys if you don't leave us alone. <laughs> like, oh, well, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> So where are we with this cow thing? <laughs> yeah, can we go back to that? Yeah. So eventually, the U.S. did attempt to stage a rescue mission with a military force, but it was plagued by problems from the beginning. A small task force landed in the desert southeast of Tehran in April of 1980 with a plan to move by helicopter and stage a quick raid on the embassy and get the hostages out and to safety. But from the start, two of the eight helicopters malfunctioned before getting to the first staging area, and another, a third helicopter, broke down once it got to the staging area. Once the mission was deemed a failure, one of the remaining helicopters ran into a support aircraft, and eight U.S. service members were killed in the crash. Their bodies ended up being left behind in Iran and were later found and paraded before TV cameras in Iran. Yeah, that's one of the most lasting images, I would say, of this entire event. Yeah. As is to be expected, President Jimmy Carter and his administration were humiliated by the whole ordeal and did everything they could to get the bodies back to the United States. But Secretary of State Cyrus Vance resigned after the failed mission. After this, Iran made a statement saying that any further military movements by the United States would be enough cause for the hostages to be killed and they moved all of them to new concealed locations. By May of 1980, many of the United States allies had placed economic embargoes on Iran. That alone wasn't enough to push negotiations, but once Iran finally installed a new government after the revolution had taken place, 
and were quickly thereafter invaded by Iraq, they softened on talks with the U.S. <laughs> with many world leaders refusing to help Iran against Iraq and Iranian economy suffering, negotiation talks were renewed. However, Iran refused to talk with the U.S. directly, and instead, talks went through Algerian diplomats. That's always, like, that, to me, it was always so random. Like, Algeria, just kind of minding its own business. Yeah, they're like, you guys are the ones we're going to go through. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it was chosen. I no idea. But they, they refused to work with the U.S. in any direct ways. Right, right. Talks continued out of 1980 and into early 1981, with Iran mostly demanding economic freedom from embargoes and their frozen assets, and eventually agreements were finally made, and 444 days after it began, the hostage crisis in Iran was over. Minutes after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as the new president of the United States, the hostages were released. And as is to be expected, the event took a huge toll on Jimmy Carter's presidency and U.S. morale as a whole. Yeah, this kind of, I mean, when I think about like the classic like, dad philosophy, like, oh, Ronald Reagan, great president. I think this is the majority. This is of, why he won. This is why, yeah. <laughs> it's, and this was just a huge embarrassment for the U.S. I mean, we're totally. supposed to be the supreme power, and we could barely organize a small rescue mission right. without some of our men dying and then being paraded on national TV in our enemy's country. You know, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a tough thing to come back from in a, in a sense of pride, you know? Oh, for sure. After the 1979 revolution, Iran almost immediately had to deal with the Iran Iraq war when Saddam Hussein became president of Iraq and invaded the Southern part of Iran. Very quickly after he took power and taking advantage of the isolation of Iran in the post-hostage crisis days, Saddam realized that it was his best chance to strike. The Iran-Iraq war was brutal, to say the least. It saw subversive Iranian forces helping the Iraqi forces and dissident Islamic groups bombing local headquarters of the new Republican government all while Iraqi forces used chemical weapons and destroyed Iranian cities. Prisoners were being tortured, with female ones being sexually assaulted and forced into temporary marriages with the guards before being executed. And eventually, Iran did fight back enough that Iraq withdrew their forces in 1982, but instead of accepting a deal to end hostilities, Iran refused to capitulate. And the fighting continued until 1988, with bombings hitting population centers, as well as industrial targets like oil refineries. Eventually, U.S. warships helped escort oil tankers in the Persian Gulf and accidentally shot down an Iranian passenger plane in the process, which took an even heavier toll on the already, on the already downtrodden civilians of Iran. A ceasefire was eventually called in August of 1988 when the United Nations finally stepped in to help, and this was less than a year before Khomeini would die. His successor was Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, and additionally, with this new election of a new Ayatollah, a new president was also elected, named Akbar Hashemi Raf, Raf Sajani, a pragmatic leader who he actually did a good job in attempting to rebuild Iran after being torn up by war and the hostage crisis and all of that. He privatized the industry in Iran and encouraged foreign investment from the West for a more lim liberal economic policy. But at the top, Khamenei was continuing to 
keep a strong stranglehold on the government of Iran and has since taken a hardline stance against the United States. After all of the events in Iran, administrations like that of the Bush presidency in the early 2000s promoted Iran to pretty much be pushed up to public enemy number one, surrounding them with support in areas like Iraq, Afghanistan, and in the Persian Gulf. One of the biggest things that I saw in the, the documentary that talked about the effects of the revolution nowadays, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people in Iran that are pushing for nuclear expansion. And this documentary is probably about 10 years old now, I would say. But they said, like, we want to push for nuclear power. It's not that we want to use it just for war. We just want to be able to do it. Right. But we keep getting blocked at every turn while Iraq, Afghanistan, all of these countries around us, Israel, are allowed to push further with nuclear expansion. And it's just us that are getting targeted and told we can't. Yeah, they absolutely had public enemy number one uh, status, if you will, especially for the United States. I mean, after that hostage crisis, I, I mean, there's no way that I think at that point, the government of any of these nations are going to let this country develop anything nuclear or yeah. anything resembling nuclear, whether it be for energy or for weapons of mass destruction. And one way that it kind of became real to me how big of an enemy this regime was to the United States is look at the beginning of the Naked Gun movie where they're in yeah. the, where he infiltrates that <laughs> meeting and Khomeini or a guy looked that is supposed to represent Khomeini is like the guy that's heading the council. Right. You know? So it it's yeah. They very quickly became uh a source of terror for everyone in the United States. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, that reminds me of other... I, let, I mean, let's just take in the movie vein, like with North Korea, everyone taking shots at Kim Jong-un. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's interview. like that fear-based, the interview, uh, uh, the one where it's like dolls, I'm blanking. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like the American Super Force or whatever yeah. it's called. like oh A special gosh. Team America or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, like... It's, I mean, it affects the entire American population. We do this throughout our history whenever there's a new, let's say, new global threat, new big bad enemy, big bad evil guy. It affects even our pop culture. Yeah, Team America World Police. That's what Thank you're thinking you. of. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Team America World Police. What an insane movie. Yeah. Uprisings continued to occur to the new policy in Iran and were once again suppressed brutally while rem while women's rights advocates continued to fight against gender inequalities in the new Islamic Republic. However, despite many changes in presidential power, the Iranians still live under the 1979 constitution, with Professor Shadi Mokhtari of the School of International Service saying that the current revolutionary regime is actually more oppressive than the one that was overthrown, basically replacing an authoritarian regime with a religious authoritarian regime. Spider-Man meme. <laughs> yeah, literally. One of them's just wearing a re more religious robes. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> the upper class is made up of the revolutionaries' leaders and business class who work with the rules of the regime, who flaunt their wealth on social media while the middle classes and the poor are struggling to survive. Drug addiction is a huge problem, with around 6% of the population being estimated to struggle with opiate use compared to 0.1% of the United States population having the same issue per that late 2010s documentary that I mentioned earlier. 
In addition, the issue of HIV has been plaguing Iran in tandem with the drug use. And essentially, the revolution is forcing the citizens of Iran to live the double life of attempting to secularize themselves while also trying to appease the religious government. Two opposing viewpoints dominate the political system, representing an unwavering religious system against a more moderate republican system. And according to an expert on Iranian society who interviewed alongside Professor Mokhtari, quote, You have a dual culture. You have the street culture and you have the home culture. At home, rather than teaching your children to always tell the truth, you actually teach them to lie. End quote. I mean, yeah, lie to survive. Yeah. Because otherwise you're going to get arrested by this religious regime, you know. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean there are no positives coming from Iran today. Professor Mokhtari believes there are promising transformations taking place amongst the youth of Iran. And according to her, quote, They are increasingly adopting and subscribing to cosmopolitan values. The youth have been a part of very impressive social movements, the women's movement, for example, and there are protests all the time in Iran. There's this practice of resistance and dissent on a small scale happening all the time despite the repression. I think this provides a ray of hope that there can be political change. So, as it sits today, or as it sits in, recent history, in the recent past, it's uh, still not good times for Iran, and they're still kind of figuring it out. But hopefully the uh, new generations can kind of provide a ray of light and a ray of change for a more accepting kind of society in Iran. Right. I mean, we're talking close to 100 years of almost constant political upheaval. Yeah. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say constant because there are 10 years gaps or 10 years of one <laughs> right. government from time to time. But, uh, I mean, that's just so little stability to have. Yeah, I it's mean, it's it's got to be hard for a population who doesn't know what the next day is going to bring in any scenario. We get we have it yeah. nice here, whereas like things are relatively stable, and the only thing we have to deal with is housing prices are high or right like, like traffic. I wrote. I remember it's very funny that you brought that up. Like I was complaining the other day vehemently about the amount of road construction happening in Wisconsin, and I mean <laughs> that's such a. That's such a first world problem thing. Like, oh, our yeah. roads are getting better. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> How dare they? A small inconvenience for a better infrastructure. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But, but, I mean, also just with the constant warfare, I mean, you can't establish business. You can't develop a strong economy. You can't develop a middle class. Like, you can't own property. Like, you can't get to the point where the layperson can actually make money if there's no stability right especially when you're surrounded by opponents like you have yeah. you have people from the un and pretty much every country that surrounds you and it's stationed in the persian gulf for the most part so mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to not feel like you're being pushed in on by all angles and totally. especially when you've had two rulers since this revolution you've had khomeini and now you have hamini and there was actually rumors that hamini had died because uh he wasn't seen for a while, and then he made a public appearance saying, no, I'm alive. He's back! Yeah, so <laughs> I believe he's still alive today, but yeah, I mean, you've had different presidents, but I don't know how much power they actually wield. Like, you can, they have elections and stuff, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you still have a supreme leader above all of it, so. Hard to get a lot done. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like I said, we're not politic people, but uh, hopefully Iran has better days ahead of it, because they've 
kind of been going through it for the past yeah 100 years or so you know what i hope they figure it out i do too because i think we kind of unjustly <laughs> as a country labeled them as the worst thing to happen to the world <laughs> for a while i that's kind of shifted now to other places but you know what putin yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe they're thanking putin saying thanks for getting right. that monkey off our back but yeah that is uh, a basic rundown on uh, the i guess revolutions of iran not if the main one being the 1979 one but it was extremely interesting learning about this topic too because i mean we're in our mid-20s right so like we grew up during like desert storm like we grew up during our time the entire invasion um of or like post 9-11 for example uh we've also now recently been through like us pulling out of afghanistan and stuff so getting historical context for like these different like current events that have happened in our lives i think is extremely beneficial like the classic question of history how did we get there right right so I did like learning quite a bit about this subject. And shout out Nate. He yeah, said he honestly, did it again. I, I I'm the same exact way. Like getting a little more context for what the reasoning was behind why we are so hostile towards this area of the world, mm-hmm. at least in this country specifically. But it's it's just insane that we basically invaded them and then got mad when they kicked us out and then this started i mean granted they took a bunch of our people hostage that were innocent that really didn't do anything but at the same time it's just differing viewpoints got in the way once again you know right on a grand scale but i mean yeah that's i mean that's very true both sides have blame to be placed on them for sure so exactly as is as is the case with most things as i mentioned in i want to say in our wrap-up of 2022 where the the ukraine war is one of the first conflicts in a while where it's like easy black and white this guy's bad this guy's good Mm -hmm. in this case it's kind of like uh there's a middle ground that we're kind of both towing the line Right, right. But if you want to continue the conversation with us, you can do it in several ways. We have multiple ways to engage. First off, we have a Patreon.com account, uh, Gems of History Podcast. If you go on there and subscribe, we currently have one level of Patreonage every week. I can't <laughs> yeah, ever... I, I'm, always come, I'm waiting to see if you come up with new words for it every time. I always like shoot a look at you like, <laughs> crap. <laughs> but uh, it's currently $5. You get a sticker, and you're also able to participate in that community and vote on listener-suggested episodes. So if you liked what you heard today, as with all weeks, you like what you hear, but this episode in particular was a listener-suggested episode, uh, feel free to cast a vote. Uh, when when that is available uh, we also have a twitter at gems underscore history you can find jacob on twitter at jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis you can also find us on instagram tiktok youtube <laughs> i think that's all <laughs> Every, facebook, everywhere pretty much <laughs> facebook damn we're reachable and facebook uh, at gems of history podcast just type that in and you should be able to find us yeah and uh i, I didn't really realize that like maybe people don't know what Patreon is. So just us saying, oh, yeah. like, go to Patreon. Uh, it's basically just a, a platform that you guys can donate to us and give us a little extra money and we give you a little extra content or, uh, like, privileges 
to our content in a certain way. Uh, but basically, you can just download the app or go on the website and search for our name. And then you can put in your information, make an account, and then you can sign up to monthly donations to support us in a way that is like beneficial to both of us, I guess, in the long run. So thank you to everyone who does support us on Patreon currently. We really do appreciate all of the, the love and support that you guys give us. And once again, welcome to any new people that may join or may have just started listening to us. We appreciate the support and just the fact that you are here with us today. So thank you all for all of the support. We love you and stay polished. And Evan, you know what I'm going to do now? I ran, (laughs) I ran out of this episode. Goodbye.